Hey friends, we hope this message from C3 Fort Worth helps you see Jesus like never before. And if you're in or around Fort Worth, we'd love to meet you on a Sunday or at one of our weekly dinner parties. I, I don't know if any of you guys, if any of you guys are night people. Do we got any night owls in the building? You go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. Don't be ashamed. I'm with you. I am one of you. We are together. Um, by the way, my name is Brandon. This is Meredith. We pastor this amazing church. We like this place. Um, but the, the night owl, we all have these night moments, right? It, for me, going, staying up late is like everybody else is in bed. Everybody else is done talking. Nobody's really posting anything. It's like, I, I got nothing. I was a designer for years, so I was like, I, I did all my work from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. That was just how I did it. And uh, it didn't do well for me. Like, ultimately, I needed to kind of figure some things out. Um, but we tend to think of the nighttime whether it be your parents getting divorced, whether it be trying to figure out what's happening at this school that's meant to be this, but it's not being that for you, or you're trying to sort out different things in life. We all go through these kind of nighttime moments, and, and you ever hear people say, hey, nothing good happens after midnight. And I understand the saying, but it's always said by a parent after their kid does something stupid. But if I look back at my life, some of the best moments were midnight moments. Some of the absolute best moments I ever had with my friends. No, not doing something wrong or bad, maybe stupid. One of the most amazing midnight moments was the guy running the sound back there when we were 20 years old in an old church building, praying, seeking the Lord. We, just, we did every Friday night. Jesus loves us a lot. And... Uh, <laughs> No, we had, come out of a, we had come out of an event, and, uh, and he said, I want to pray to receive the Holy Spirit and receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we went, and it was, I mean, it was dark, and we were praying, and he was praying, and, and face down on the floor. And, uh, and it was an amazing moment, and it happened after midnight. Some of the greatest designs I ever did happened at 1.30 in the morning when I was tired and fed up and sick of doing what I was doing. And I don't mean to make this too simplistic, but for so many of us, we tend to think that the dark moments of our life, the moments where it doesn't seem like anything good is happening, and maybe more than that, it feels like only bad things are happening. One of the challenges is that when it gets dark in our life, we tend to think that Jesus is up to nothing, that God is not at work or at the very least could not be at work. That he is limited by the circumstances you have found yourself in. One quote that I read this week, and doesn't, we don't know who the author is, it just said unknown, is that anything is possible after midnight. Every time we go to bed, we wake up the next day, and it's a new day. And that can get a bit, that can get a bit just hokey and, hey, way to go, and pat you on the back and all that. But I tend to believe that it's a true statement. That while there may be some of the same circumstances following you, you have the opportunity to walk into it in a new way. See, the resurrection is so, so important because it makes all things new. Now, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, Jesus tended to be a bit of a night owl. All of you who raised your hand. Take a bow. You are more spiritual than the rest. <laughs> Jesus had several moments. 
that happened at nighttime. You remember that moment when Jesus walks on water and then Peter gets out and starts to walk on water? You remember the first thing they said when they saw Jesus? It's a ghost. Do you think that happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? In fact, the story goes that he sent them off, and in the middle of the night, Jesus was off praying on the shore, and he sees their boat in distress, and he comes walking to them on the water in the nighttime. Jesus was not afraid of the dark. In fact, uh, one time he did an all-nighter. He, he pulled a lock-in and went off and did some prayer time. Some of you are like, lock-ins, what are those? Don't ask. I was in youth ministry. Don't ask. Bad memories. Jesus went off and prayed all night long and came back and did what? Chose the disciples. Chose the people he was going to do life with for the next three years. In fact, there's another moment in Holy Week that we just celebrated where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and prays at nighttime. Jesus is betrayed at nighttime. Jesus is crucified, I don't know if you know this, crucified most likely towards the morning, not the evening. Meaning he sat on the cross all day long. People looking, seeing, crying, thinking it was done, thinking it was finished. Jesus was not one who was afraid of the dark. Jesus embraced it. He knew what it was. One author says that after the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul comes just before Revelation. And I feel like, you know, as a country and as people, we have over the last year, year and a half, have, have gone through some very difficult things, processing different things. We're still dealing with so many things. We're still processing so many things. We're still working out exactly how things are going to look and what we should do and how we're dealing with relationships and, and different things. And we're still working through some of those things. And for some of us, there were some very dark moments that happened over the last 14 months. In fact, it's been two years since we actually got to do Easter service in a building together, which is wild. And we tend to think that Jesus can't handle it when it gets dark. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus actually rose while it was still dark. We have to understand something about the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar, so when you take Sabbath... In the Jewish calendar, what you would do is you would end the day at Friday evening, and you would take Sabbath through to Saturday evening. Why do they do that? Because they didn't go based on midnight to midnight as a day. In the Jewish calendar, they would, they would, the day would start in the evening and go until the next evening. So you didn't wake up going it's a new day. You went to bed going it's all starting new. And so, so it's important for us to understand that, that even as Jesus is being laid in a tomb, he's beginning something new. He's already starting the process. We, we end our day as the sun goes down. And many of you guys know this because when you get done, when you finish your work and maybe you've eaten dinner, you immediately begin to think about what? What's your schedule? Am I going to finish that project? Am I going to get that thing done? Am I, going to, am I going to be able to pay that bill? All the things that you've got to do the next day all of a sudden hit your mind. And we do this because of our culture and because of the way we do things. We tend to try as hard as we can for the last couple hours of the day to push that off. 
I'm just going to let it wait till tomorrow. I'm just going to get there tomorrow. And you spend the rest of the night stressing more about just trying to keep it off your mind, right? Because you start your day as the sun goes down. And Jesus, Jesus is not afraid of the dark. I want you to go to John chapter 20. I'm not going to spend long. I, I, I almost went, I wanted to go back and reread through all the things we covered over this Lenten season. If you've not been with us, we uh, started Lent. Uh, just uh, after Epiphany, which is the beginning of the year, we've done the church calendar this year. It's been a really unique thing for us to do. We never have ne- never done that. Um, some of these things I'd never heard of. Uh, some of these things I've preached that I had never really preached before. Uh, and that's why some of this is so new to me, uh, because we aren't just picking a topic. We are uh, preaching what is already there. And, um, and I, I want to just remind some of you guys the journey that we've been on. And we'll go to John 20 in just a moment. But uh, I want to remind you, just a couple moments. One was the table uh, flipping by Jesus. Jesus would have done that on Tuesday of this past Holy Week, which is the journey towards the cross. Some of you guys have heard me say this like 12 times because it's just that good. And some of you have already forgotten, so I'm reminding you. But Jesus went into the outer courts of the temple, 35-acre temple. The king was really trying to make a point. He wanted to have the biggest temple, and he was making a political decision of trying to make sure these people wouldn't revolt. So he built this massive temple, 35 acres. How many of you have ever thought that when Jesus went in and flipped, all the ta- like flipped the tables, he was flipping all the tables? You thought it was just some like, small temple, and he was like flipping three, and he was good. No, he went into the outer courts. He didn't flip all the tables. Uh, I know he's God, but I don't think he had worked his endurance to that point. And so Jesus flips all the tables. And what he's doing in this moment is he's in the outer court with the Gentiles, telling the Gentiles, hey, this is made for you. And he's telling the Jews, you have crowded them out, and you have not made room for the people I came to save. How many of us as church folk every once in a while crowd the people who really need to get into the presence of God out of the church with all the kinds of regulations and thoughts and things, and we, we, we don't trust God enough to change them, so we make sure we do before they ever get here. So he flips the, t- the tables. The other one was riding in on the donkey. How many of you loved that last week? There's a donkey in every crowd, and it's Easter Sunday, so I really can't say what I want to say, but there is. And Jesus rode in on a donkey, and yes, it meant lowly, and yes, it meant humble, and yes, all of those things, but it wasn't only that. You can see, so, uh, find several instances of a donkey escorting uh, high, uh, noble uh, princes and princesses into certain places all through the Old Testament. This was not just some animal that was like throw away and, and so stealing a donkey was no big deal because he kind of did. And, uh, and he got this donkey and he rode in. Now here's what he's doing. He's juxtapositioning the king across the city who rode in to bring peace through war. And he's riding in on a donkey because anyone who would ride in on a donkey was bent on peace. And Jesus was showing that the peace he was going to bring was a peace that was brought through his death, not anyone else's. And this is the kind of journey we've been on. Even John 3.14, we said it last week. I just, I think it's awesome. I probably said it 12 times this week in different conversations. That Jesus would be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Why? Because the serpent in the wilderness, out of Numbers chapter 21, if they would look upon the serpent, they would be healed. That when the cross is lifted, When Jesus is glorified on the cross, people would see him and be healed. These are the kinds of things we've been on this journey towards the cross and towards the resurrection. 
And every Sunday during Lent is a feast. Every Sunday a feast. And today is the celebratory. This is the big one. This is the one where we, we've been practicing for six weeks what it looks like to have a party. So we came in today to have the big one. John chapter 20. I'm just going to read a few verses because I do want to touch on just a couple things uh, before we go. We will, we're, we're moving into what you would call on the church calendar Easter time. And uh, it's a really creative name. Uh, Easter time. Easter was not just a weekend. Easter was not just a day. Easter was, it set the tone for the rest of time. And so there is a six-week window leading up to Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2 where, where Easter is talked about for five, six weeks. What does the resurrection mean to us? How many of you benefit us all to, to dwell on Jesus' resurrection a little more often? And so over the next several weeks, we'll be talking about that. And what we're going to talk about, and I just thought it made a lot of sense, and it just really felt right. We're going to be talking about how do you live in light of the resurrection of Christ after death and loss and pain and hurt and difficulty and discouragement and anxiety and worry? How do you live in light of the cross? How do you live after midnight? Because John chapter 20, we read that these disciples are not in a good place. When Jesus died, they thought everything had ended. They thought everything was over. It was finished. Everything they had worked towards, everything that... Remember, the disciples knew this. When a, when a rabbi would come to a disciple and say, hey, I want you to follow me, what the, the, the rabbi meant to the disciple was, I want you to follow me wherever I go and into whatever I walk into. So when Jesus then tells the disciples, hey, you're going to, be, you're going to suffer for my name's sake, He's not doing that for them. He's saying, I'm going to, and it means that you will also. I know we don't love that word, suffering. It's not a nice word. Come on, man. It's Easter. What are you doing? But it is through the death on the cross that we find actual, real resurrection life. When Jesus bids us to come and die, he's not doing that so that we might lose all things, but that we might gain everything. As Paul says later in uh, his letters to the church, as he says, I can't live this life pleasing people. It doesn't work. Even the crowds who ushered Jesus in just a week ago uh, crucified him. And neither crowd, the ones that thought he was going to be a king or a politician or an army or war hero, they weren't pleased. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the, they weren't pleased. Jesus wasn't here to please people. He was here to serve people and give his life for people. And to completely flip the picture. Okay, John chapter 20. I should read it because I've mentioned it several times. It's about time we get there. John chapter 20, towards the end of John's gospel. And there's an interesting phrase here. We're going to read uh, John chapter 20, verse 1. We'll probably make it to verse 18 if, if I can. If I don't, we'll get there next week. Next week, we'll be talking about after doubt. How do you deal with doubt? How do you walk through doubt? Uh, it's a story of... Uh, what some call Doubting Thomas, although I think it's a bit of an unfair uh, label. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was... Thank you. You, were, you guys were good on that one. While it was still dark. So everything that happened after this, right? All the, the empty tomb, everything else, it was already empty when she got there. 
Now, they had something they would call third watch or fourth watch. They, they, had, they broke their time into like three-hour blocks. And so you, you didn't get like a specific, it's 12.01. You got kind of a general idea of when a time was, and they would kind of estimate. And so the, 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 the historians of the Bible will tell you that most likely this was between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Feels early. But I want you to remember that this woman had watched the man who had set her free of demons, who had, who had loved her when nobody else would, when everybody else had put a label on her, and she had followed Jesus, had become one of his disciples, and she'd followed Jesus on his journey, and she watched him just two days earlier die a horrible death on a cross, and then be buried, and she's not coming expecting that Jesus wouldn't be there, she's coming to mourn the fact that he was. She's coming, going, it's over, it's done, and I'm still processing it. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still unsure of what all of this means. What does it mean that the one who said he had come to save, what does it mean that he's done and he's finished and it's gone? And not only did he die, but he died in the worst possible way. You don't die on a cross if you're a victor. You don't die on the cross if you're winning. You don't die on the cross if somehow you're the righteous savior of the world. You die on the cross if you're a criminal. You die on the cross if you're the low of the low. We read this Friday night. Jesus didn't die between two candles in a cathedral. He died between two criminals on a cross. Because Jesus, just like he did when he got baptized by John the Baptist, was identifying with you and I. In the ugliest river, by a guy who ate locusts, he got baptized. That's all you need to know about Jesus, is that he's willing to get baptized in a messed up, ugly river in a non-Christian town by John the Baptist with a beard and wacky, eating, eating locusts, and he goes, not going to be baptized by you. Jesus came so that all people would know he's for them. So Mary Magdalene shows up while it was still dark. She saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciples. She didn't want to walk in. She, she's kind of What's going on? Her, her, her thought is that someone had stolen Jesus. And if they were still around, if there were grave poachers, this was kind of a thing. If there was someone in there robbing or stealing, she didn't want to go in there. So she ran back to Peter. She ran back to the disciples. Now remember, Simon Peter has just denied Jesus. But he's still in. He's still figuring it out. And then the one that Jesus loved, that's John, the one writing the gospel. That's not really fair, but it's okay. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Of course you did. You wrote it. And John got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following, of course, Simon Peter goes, I'll go in. And he entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth. See, this is an important detail because anyone who was going to steal a body or at least remove the body wouldn't unwrap the body and then fold them up and place them neatly in the grave. And so the, the disciples see this. The wrapping that had been on his head, verse 7, was not lying with the linen clothes but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, again, just, just points, right? Had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw, and believed. Just remember that. He saw and believed. He saw the linen clothes 
Saul believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. At this point, they still don't think Jesus is alive. They just think he's stolen. John, it says that John, again, he's writing it, so he might be messing with time, and he does that in his gospel. He kind of puts stories in all kinds of different places. And John says that when he saw the linen clothes, he believed. Peter is walking back with John, still trying to figure out what he's to do with this empty tomb. And then we see Mary Magdalene. So we've got three different characters who are partaking of this story. But Mary stood outside facing the tomb, crying as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet. This is always a significant thing because for those of us who need to understand, it is, it is a really unique thing that in the Bible, women were such a key part, and especially in the story of the resurrection. The story of the resurrection, for, to have women at that time be the testifying characters of Jesus' resurrection was a really significant thing because at the time, their opinion or testimony was not valued in the same way. And so for the biblical writers, to keep, it's just like everything else in the Bible. Why did you put that in there if you were writing a hero story? Why did you put those things in there about your followers if you're trying to tell us to be good disciples? The whole Bible, yes, is an ideal of how we should live, but also an acknowledgement that it's really hard sometimes. And at the end of the day, it is the Holy Spirit that allows us to live where Christ has called us to. He never asked us to do it on his own, on our own. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head, one at the feet, where Jesus' body had been lying. She said to, uh, they said to her, sorry, woman, why are you crying? Well, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, still crying, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. This is one of the more unique things that happens in the, in the gospel accounts of Jesus and his resurrection. It says, saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. She did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Supposing he was the gardener. Now that's not just an accident. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Mary is talking to Jesus, the one that she has followed for a couple years, and he's saying, hey, what are you looking for? She looks at him, thinks he's the gardener. It says, hey, if you took him, let me know where. What's going on? Tell me what to do, and I'll go get him. If you did something you weren't supposed to do, I won't tell anybody. Just let me have him. And Jesus says this. Jesus says, Mary. I love that. I love Jesus. I love that Jesus knows your name. I love that Jesus knows my name. I love that Jesus standing there listening to Mary go, are you the gardener? Are you the one that like makes this place look okay? Uh, you missed three spots and you stole Jesus. You know, like who are you? Are you the, I mean, because I, I can't find him. And Jesus, I don't know, I don't know. This is my personality. But there's got to be part of Jesus that's kind of like, kind of funny. Right, just chuckling a little bit. Maybe a little smirk. Like, y'all think Jesus smiled? I think he did. I bet when he said Mary, he was smiling. And the moment he says her name, now there's a key part of this, and it maybe explains a little bit about why she wasn't recognizing who he was. Jesus says, Mary, and she turned around. 
She said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai, which means teacher. She had this epiphany. She had this moment. But she had turned back. She looked at, she had taken, she's crying. She's distraught. She's hurt. She's broken. And she turns around and looks at Jesus, thinks he's the gardener, turns back towards the grave, still dumbfounded by the fact that there's no one in it. And Jesus, getting her attention, says, Mary. She turns around. And at the time, this would have happened. Teacher, rabbi, it's you. You're the one. And Jesus says, don't cling to me because I'm about to ascend to the Father. Don't. And he's not saying, don't touch me. This is not the phrasing. The phrasing here is not, don't come close. He's saying, don't get too attached. This is not the final thing. We're about to move on to the next thing. This is more of a big statement than a, just a, a proximity statement. And so Jesus says, to, it's me. Don't get too close. It's like, hey, but it's me. I'm the one. And, and so what is it about Mary? You've got John who comes in, sees the linen clothes, and believes you got Peter who ran in and probably just kind of threw some things around. That just sounds like Peter. And then walks out and is walking with John. John's kind of believing, not ready to say yet because it would sound a little bit crazy. Uh, they didn't quite understand the resurrection thing. So John's holding that to himself. Peter's standing next to him. They're walking back because they got to tell the other disciples because the other disciples didn't come. Don't you think that's weird? Again, none of these people thought Jesus was going to be alive. None of them. Not a single one of them thought, oh, Jesus is good. If they did, don't you think they would have run to the grave to find him? No, they started hatching a plan. What do we got to do? What are we going to do? Jesus is gone. Then it's going to. And then you have Mary, Mary, standing at the grave. She can't bring herself to leave. She doesn't want to go back with the disciples. She still needs to mourn. She still needs to be frustrated. She still needs to process. She's crying. And she looks at the gardener. And says, I'm looking for somebody. If you know where he is, just let me know. But I've got to stay here. And Jesus calls her by name. you got three different people, all with very different approaches to Jesus. All with very different approaches to the resurrection of Christ. Every single one of them processing through what they expected and what they believed and what they thought they were going to find at the grave. They all thought they were going to find a dead Savior. They all thought it was over and done. They were simply coming to mourn. They hadn't done it the day before because it was the Sabbath, so they weren't allowed to. So they come as early as they can, 3 o'clock in the morning, get a couple hours of sleep, and then head to the grave. They're going to mourn their friend, their Savior, their rabbi, their teacher. And all three of them have a different encounter with what the empty grave means. I want to just kind of submit to you, just say this to you. It's possible that all of us have a different journey to Jesus. It's possible that some of us are like Mary at the tomb. Eyes are crying. We are broken. We are hurting. And we can't bring ourselves to leave, even in our confusion, even in our wonder, even in our, I, we don't understand. I can't leave this. I'm, I'm broken. Peter probably has already hatched a plan, and now he's got three more. By the time he gets to the house, he's got 17 ways they can handle this situation. And John has already believed, but he's not ready to say anything yet. And they're going back to the disciples to simply tell them the grave is empty. You may be coming in here like Mary. Or you may have come in here like John. And you might be coming in here like Peter. You might be coming in here like Mary, trying to see Jesus through the tears and the pain and the challenge and the midnight. You might be like Peter who isn't really sure what's going on, but he's coming up with something, and I'm going to figure it out, and I'm a little bit skeptical, and I'm a little bit unsure, and I'm going to go find the guy who took 
Jesus. So you might be like John. You just needed that one thing, and you saw it, and you believed. And guess what? Every single one of those people is welcome at the feet of Jesus. Every single one of those people is allowed to come into the church and partake of the body of Christ because he came for all people. And he looks at Mary and he says, Mary. And she turns and she finally gets a glimpse. Now, I love this thing because um, there's a story. Jesus tended to be a bit of a botanist. He tended to kind of always talk about plants and trees and all the things that I'm not good at. And so I try to pour it into sports analogies when I read the Bible. I just translate it all. I'm going to come out with my own translation. It's going to be, it's going to be nice. And, uh, and, 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 and he had all these stories about this. And, of course, it would have made much more sense in the day when most people had some familiarity with it. And Jesus tells us one where he says that the sower sows the seed, Right? And uh, some of you haven't heard the story that there's th- four different soils, three different soils that this falls on, and, and each one, most of them don't take. And then the one that does take, the one that actually grows, it grows uh, 30, 60, 100-fold. After Jesus dies on the cross, and they take him off of the cross, and they take him to a tomb of a rich man, the one who didn't think he should be crucified, wasn't sure he believed in him, but definitely didn't think he should, deserved uh, a sinner's death took him off the cross, put him in a grave, put guards out in front so nobody could start a revolt. Listen, the Pharisees were hell-bent on making sure Jesus never made another impact at all at any moment in time. I think they failed. Anyways, they, they lay him in the tomb. One author says he is like the seed that is planted in the earth, that the kingdom of God, like Jesus said, would grow and grow and grow until many would find rest in its branches. And Jesus, I think it's interesting, we were started in a garden, and then somewhere along the way, Mary sees him as a gardener. See, sometimes we read the Bible so flat that we miss its depth. We miss the brilliance of the writers. We miss the brilliance of the stories. That in this amazing story Jesus is mistaken as a gardener, the one who would plant a seed and cultivate it, the one who would make things come out of the ground, out of the darkness of the soil so that they might have life again. And not only that, the second Adam, the one, you know, the one that messed it up back in the day, and then it, Romans talks about, Paul says that, that Jesus was the second Adam, the more perfect Adam, the one that we all have been waiting for. It is interesting that in his resurrection, he's mistaken for the very thing that Adam was originally created to be, and what you and I were originally created to be, those who would cultivate the earth until it looked like heaven. So why does Jesus' resurrection mean something? Because it means you and I can get back to planting seed and making this earth look more like what Jesus made it to be. Jesus rose from the grave so that he could begin a whole new garden. Jesus rose from the grave so that you and I could believe the love that he poured out on the cross because of the power he displayed coming out of the grave. The death and resurrection of Christ can never be separated. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I didn't come to you with wise speech, with persuasive words. I came to you preaching the one message I know. It is that Jesus Christ died and he was buried and he rose again. That is the message and it's the only one
What's amazing about Paul in all of his sermons and all of his things, he never once talked about a parable Jesus told. He never once talked about a miracle Jesus did. He never once talked about all the acclaim that Jesus got while he was on the earth. All he ever talked about was the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Why? Because all the other miracles were just a taste. They were just a hint. They were just a small, small glimpse of what the real miracle was, and that was Jesus dying for you and I, that he might rise again so you and I can live in what is new life after midnight. You might be crying. You might be skeptical. You might be like John, like I saw the linens today. That one, that second song got me. I'm in. And all of us are welcome at the table of the Lord. Because the bread of life was broken for you and I. Because the seed was planted in every single one of us. Because God says to you, I love you more than life itself. And there is no dark, there is no night, there is no thing that would keep me from ever being close to you. Jesus didn't stop for three steps from the cross. Why? Because he didn't want you to ever think there was anything so bad that he couldn't be with you through it. Couldn't be with you for it. Couldn't stand with you in it. Jesus loves you to death. And while you may be in a midnight season, while the disciples were sleeping or maybe not sleeping, anxious, worried, frustrated, what's going to happen? How's it going to go? Where are we going to go from here? I got nobody to lead us. He was everything. I left my business so I could follow him. That's why you see a couple disciples going back to fishing because they thought it was over. And it was a progressive revelation of Jesus after he rose. They didn't throw a party. He went to people. Thomas, here's my scars. Mary, Mary, it's me. He went to these people and he just began to do this new work. And while they all thought it was over, while they all were sleeping or anxiety ridden in their beds, Jesus was getting out of a grave, was walking the garden, becoming the gardener again so that you and I could see this earth look like he meant it to be. See, Easter is a celebration both of his resurrection and yours. Because you are a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why when you read Psalm 118 and it says, this is the day the Lord has made. One of the, a great translation of that is say, this is the day he did work. This is the day. Psalm 118 is read over and over and over again, especially around Easter time. It got, it's, it's a messianic psalm. And so here is, this is the day. This right here. And it is every day. And we will rejoice and we will be glad in it because even if we have walked through a midnight, even if we have walked through a difficult season, the midnight does not mean it's over. It actually means it is just beginning. And while that may be painful and hard, and I'm not trying to dissuade you of feeling things, and I'm not trying to diminish the things you feel, and I'm not at all in any way trying to make you 
buck up and stand tall and be bigger than you think you are. I'm telling you, look upon the cross of Christ like the Hebrew writer says. And when you see the things he went through for you, and when you see how much he loved you, and you see how much he gave for you, and you see all that he endured for you, you will never, ever, ever run out of energy or strength because you know how much he loves you. And when you see him come out of the grave and you see the linen sitting on the seat, you might be crying, you might be questioning, you might actually just be all in already. At the end of the day, we can see Jesus victorious because the cross was the definitive revelation of his love towards you. And the resurrection was a decisive victory over the death that holds every single one of us. Death, where is your sting? I don't know where you're at today. I don't know. I don't know where you walked into this room. I don't know if you've been staring at that empty grave for a long time. Frustrated because you don't think Jesus is doing anything. Upset because he hasn't come through. This isn't how it was supposed to go. This is not how it was supposed to work. This is not the way you were supposed to do that whole Savior thing in my life. I don't know if you're like Peter. You just betrayed him three times. You're still with the disciples carrying that guilt, carrying like, man, if he is alive, what am I going to do? Because he knows I denied him. He's alive, and I really messed up. Jesus comes back and says, you will build my church. You got to understand, these people walked through midnight, and when Jesus rose, they didn't just go, oh, he's alive, great, awesome. We knew you could do it. No, everything changed. Because no longer was he teaching them life. He was showing them what life actually looked like. And it is to come out of whatever grave. It is to come out of the wages of sin. It is to come out of those things and realize that's not judgment. That's healing. That's not death. That's life. Yeah, it's backwards. Yeah, it seems weird. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's why the cross is foolish. Because he foolishly loved you enough to get on a cross so that for all of eternity you would never ever forget it and then he rose so he could enjoy it with you Mary Mary it's me Mary it's me Lord we thank you so much for today God we thank you that you are here you are with us you are for us You have not left us. You have not forsaken us. And God, while there may be some people in this room right now who are trying to see you through tears. I mean, even Mary runs back to the disciples and says, I saw the Lord. I saw him. Through tears, through heartache, through challenge and difficulty, through the midnight of my life. He had rescued me. Then he died, and I thought it was gone. It was over. But I see him again, and he's alive. You might have some tears on your face. You might have walked through some very hard things, and I'm here to tell you, look upon the cross. Look upon Jesus, because that is where you'll find healing. You may walk away a little skeptical. Well, I denied him a few times. I really messed up. If he's alive, he's going to know that I did those things. No, you need to remember the prodigal son. Because God is standing there with open arms because he loved you through the cross. Some of you might just be like, man, I I believed the moment I saw the linens. 
The moment I saw that thing folded up, I thought, no, there's no way anybody else did that. For some of you, it just needs to be the wonder and the awe all over again that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. I want to give you 30 seconds right now while the music plays. I just want you to ask this question. Some of you, may, this may be new to you, and I'm asking you to give it a shot. I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to speak to me right now about what I just heard, about what we just read? Because I can try to tell you what to think, and I just don't think that works very well. The Holy Spirit is so much better at this. So I want you to ask God, God, what is it that you want me to take from today? What do you want to do new? What tears are you going to wipe away? What life are you going to give? God, what moves do you want to make? What hurts do you want to peel off of my life? What sins do you just want to wipe out? What denials do you want to forgive? All that. Just ask the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you 30 seconds. Why don't you do that, please? I just want to lead some of you in a prayer. If you're, if you're right now just going, I, I, I'm, I'm Mary, or I'm Peter, or I'm John, or I'm, I'm one of the disciples that stayed at the house. Today you're going, I see Jesus. I've seen the Lord. I want to walk with him. I'm just going to pray a prayer, and I want you to just pray it the same way. You don't have to pray it out loud or anything. I just want you to pray a very simple, simple prayer. We do not need to convince Jesus to love us. We do not need to convince him he has already done it. So I'll just pray this in your own words. God, I give my life to you. I believe Jesus is calling some of you by name. I really do believe that. In this room right now, there are some of you that right now, God is calling you by name. There's something new. There's a horizon you hadn't seen in a minute. Midnight has gone on way too long. And Jesus is looking at you saying, Mary, saying your name. So God, I give my life to you. Jesus, I trust you. And I may not have it all figured out, but I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with your people. I'm going to walk in community. God, I give my life to you. And you will forgive, wipe away shame, wipe away guilt, hurt, heartache, brokenness. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.